Martin Luther added the word alone to the Bible. That's the charge of the Roman Catholic Church regarding Martin Luther, and with that they dismissed the entire Reformation. Let's look into that. Martin Luther, as history uh, portrays the events of the Reformation, Martin Luther was certainly the one used of God to spark the Reformation by means of his nailing the 95 Thesis on the church door at Wittenberg, which was really the way of making uh, a public announcement, like a bulletin board. That's how it was done in that day. As he nailed the 95 Thesis, he did so in the language of the scholar, in Latin, rather than the language of the people. And he was a true son of Rome. He wanted to see his church understand uh, what was taking place through the so-called ministry of Johann Tetzel, who was selling indulgences in a very provocative and illegitimate way. And he was incensed by this, Martin Luther was, and wanted to uh, stir up debate amongst the academic community and wrote in Latin, well, we know the story. Uh, students of his translated the Latin into German, and because of the Gutenberg printing press now being invented, it was very, very quickly translated and into the hands of the people in every hamlet and town and village and city of Germany within a couple of weeks. And Luther became a superstar in terms of his notoriety. I'm not sure he wanted it at all. But that's what took place. By his own admission, uh, Luther was probably not converted at this point. He was certainly religious. He was rigorous in his monkery, as he would refer to it. He was zealous beyond zealous and had a very guilty conscience, understanding the law of God. He was trained as an attorney and left that uh, academic pursuit to join the monastery, as we understand. So by his own admission, he was converted years later. Uh, we're not exactly certain of the, the date, but we pinpoint it to around 1519, when certainly we do know this, he was converted with what we call his tower experience, when he understood Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in the light of what is the gospel, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And by his own admission, he went through the gates of paradise when he understood the gospel, Romans chapter 1, 16, but especially 17. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. Fast forward to 1521, he was summoned to the Diet of Worms in Germany, and we know the story there. And straight, straight afterwards, immediately afterwards, on the way back, he was given safe passage, but no one really believed it was uh, going to be a safe passage home. And so his own people kidnapped him. must have been a frightful experience for him because he wasn't sure who was kidnapping him, but he was kidnapped and then, uh, basically for his own safety, taken uh, to the uh, castle in Wartburg where he uh, 
under, uh, underwent a, a transformation in terms of his name. He went by the name Sir Gorgay and grew out a beard and was a marked man and uh, therefore didn't just walk around the community. He stayed in the castle um, just about all the time, just about anyway. And in that, the providence of God allowed him, because of the Greek New Testament having been uh, made available through Desiderius Erasmus, a Roman Catholic but a great scholar, uh, Luther was now translating the Bible, because he was a scholar himself, from the original Greek into the language of the people, German. And that was his task, and he did it in the Wartburg Castle. Now, in 1521, that translation uh, really brought the Reformation home and was used of God mightily. And he made a controversial decision at Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. I wonder if you'll turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, where Paul is summing up his argument of the grace of God. And he has made it very clear from verse 20 that works play no part in justification, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's a massive statement of Paul, and of course divinely inspired. No human works play a part in justification. By works of the law, man's observance of what God commands. By works of the law, no flesh, no human being, none will be justified in his sight. That's God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If that's where the book of Romans ends, uh, it's all hopeless. But that's what is needing to be understood so that we might understand the good news of the gospel. To understand the good news, we must first understand the bad news. And the bad news is we're in deep weeds. We've all been pronounced under sin, whether we be Jew or Gentile. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 9. None are better off than the other in the sense of their performance before a holy God. All of us are declared to be under the charge of sin. All are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. And so verse 20 really informs us of justification and it declares that no human works are involved in that justification when God declares us right in his sight because what the law does is reveal sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thankfully, things turn at verse 21 with the word but. Here's now good news. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from observing the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the entire Old Testament testifies to the message of grace. That's what's in view here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a declaration of the gospel. And then we have the word for. For there's no distinction for all have sinned. Who are the all? All Jews, all Gentiles, all people. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not even the end of the sentence. And are justified, that means to be declared right before God by God, are justified by his grace as a gift. It's like a gift gift. It's grace and a gift. Once you've said the word gift, uh, you've said it's a gift. And once you've said the word grace, you've said it's a a gift. Grace is unmerited favor. And we are justified by his gracious gift, by his grace as a gift. He is going to great lengths here to declare the means of our justification and it's grace, it's gift. On what basis? On what basis can God give us justification by his grace as a gift? Here's the answer. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus, by who he is and what he's done, by his person and his work, we can be justified by his grace as a gift. Ladies and gentlemen, again, that's a declaration of the gospel. Talking of Christ Jesus, verse 25 says, whom God, talking of him, talking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation is a big theological word, but it's one we really need to grasp. It means the fact that God's wrath, God's anger is averted by means of a sacrifice. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And God has endorsed the person and the work of Christ, his work on the cross for us, as a means whereby God's wrath is averted. Not for everyone, but for everyone who believes. And that's in fact what verse 25 goes on to say. Talking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that's his death on the cross, to be received by faith. There it is. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a declaration of the gospel. And Paul goes on. This was to show God's righteousness, not some weakness of his, not overlooking sin because he just decides to. No, God's righteousness is in view in the whole process here. How? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. God had not meted out judgment on everyone in Old Testament times before the cross of Christ because he knew the cross was coming. In his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, ladies and gentlemen, that's a declaration of the gospel. Justification righteousness takes place while God remains altogether just as he justifies guilty sinners. What kind of sinners? Sinners who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, were someone to boast about how they get to have right standing with God, what's the grounds of boasting? Is there any ground of boasting? 
The answer is a resounding no. It is excluded, verse 27. Boasting is excluded. It's not merely kept to a minimum. It's not even on the table. There is no grounds for human boasting. By what kind of law? On what basis? By a law of works? Again, are works involved in any way at all so that we can boast before God? I got here just a little bit by what I did, mostly by what God did. No, works are not involved. And therefore, human boasting is excluded. Totally. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Question mark? No, but by the law of faith. And here's verse 28. See it in your Bible. This is where we're centering in on our study today. For we maintain, and he's now summing up his argument. He's been presenting the gospel numerous times already from verse 21. And verse 28, he is now summing it up. For we maintain, for we hold, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's stunning. That's a summary statement. It's not out of nowhere. It's on the basis of the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. Propitiation by the death of Christ, received by faith. God's righteousness, always in view. God being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And here's the summary. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works of the law. Human effort. Human activity human works. Praise the Lord for this. So, what happened is in 1521 at the Wartburg Castle when Luther was translating from the original Greek, which he knew well, into the language of the people, uh, German, he, let's face it, translated Romans 3.28 this way. He added the word alone. In German, allein. And this is what he wrote, translated now into English. A man is justified through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Now, this is where the Roman Catholic Church honed in, as they do today, And they were immediately outraged when they saw this translation. He added the word alone. All of this is fool's play. This justification by faith alone. There it is. It's just added to the Bible. He's added the word alone. Hear it. He's added the word alone. Well, what do we say to that? Well, let's go back to Martin Luther. And later on in time, September 1530... Something was taking place at Augsburg. It's called the Diet of Augsburg. Out from it came the Augsburg Confession. And Luther still had no real uh, access to just walk around uh, Germany or the surrounding areas. Uh, He was a marked man. And so he was about 158 miles north when this was taking place at the Coburg Castle. And... um, 
what, what took place is he was now translating portions of the Old Testament and uh, he talked about his decision to use the word align or alone in Romans 3.28. And uh, I'm going to quote him. And before I do, I need to explain. It's strong stuff. It's really strong stuff. Um, 16th century rhetoric, the way people talked back then, very different time from our own. And uh, in theological disputes, it was normal to really uh, <laughs> denigrate the opposition in strong terms. And for us, with our 21st century ears and eyes, uh, we look back and think, whoa, take a break, guys. You, you can't talk to other people like this. Well, that's, that's actually what they did. It wasn't just Luther. That's the way people talk. But Luther, he, he was such a colorful character. If you've ever read him, you can understand why God used him because he was so so easy to read and funny, but he was derogatory. There is no doubt. He, he really demeaned the opposition. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I know what I'm going to be reading here. And uh, I just want to prepare you, like fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> but again, this wasn't just Luther. With our sensitivities today, this just strikes us. Uh, not here, but in, other, in another place. I remember reading Luther and he described Desiderius Erasmus. Now, he's the one who was instrumental in bringing the uh, translation of the Greek or providing the Greek New Testament to, to the, the, the world at that time. And uh, he was on the other side of the debate in terms of being a Roman Catholic. And Luther obviously was uh, protesting. But uh, Desiderius Erasmus was described by Luther on the issue of the will in, in words, again, you just have to laugh. I, I mean, he described his words as being elite, um, erudite, but what his content was, was excrement. Yes, exactly. And he described Erasmus as serving dung on silver plates. I mean, you either have to just be incensed or, or just laugh. But again, that was the rhetoric of the day. Yeah, dung on human, uh, human dung on silver plates. He's got the language of the scholar, but the content is excrement. Yeah, that, that's, that's Luther. So with that said, let me quote Luther. And he's responding to the charge of him adding the word alone in Romans 3.28. Okay, you ready? Are you sitting down? Okay, here we go. If your papist wants to make so much fuss about the word sola, obviously the word alone, tell him this. Dr. Martin Luther will have it so and says that a papist and an ass are the same thing. He then quotes Latin and interpreted it means, uh, translated it means this, I will, this I command, let that be the ground. And then he goes on. We're not going to be the pupils and dis disciples of the papists, but their masters and judges. For once, we too are going to be proud and brag with these blockheads. And as St. Paul boasts over against his mad raving saints, let me just insert, he did that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Luther goes on, so I shall boast over against these asses of mine. Are they doctors? So am I. Are they learned? So am I. Are they preachers? So am I. Are they theologians? So am I. Are they debaters? So am I. Are they philosophers? So am I. Are they dialecticians? So am I. Are they lecturers? So am I. Do they write books? So do I. I will go further with my boasting. I can expound psalms and prophets. They cannot. I can translate. They cannot. I can read the Holy Scriptures. They cannot. I can pray. They cannot. And to come down to their level, I can use their own dialectic, uh, dialectics and philosophy better than all of them put together. And besides, I know for sure that none of them understands their Aristotle. If there is a single one among all who correctly understands one preface or chapter in Aristotle, I'll eat my hat. I'm not saying too much, for I've been trained and practiced from my youth up in all their science, and I'm well aware how deep and broad it is. They are very well aware, too, that I can do everything they can. Yet these incurable fellows treat me as though I were a stranger to their field, who had just arrived this morning for the first time and had never before seen or heard what they teach and know. So brilliantly do they parade about with their science, teaching me what I outgrew 20 years ago, that to all their blatting and shouting, I have to sing with the harlot. I have known for seven years that horseshoe nails are iron. Let this be the further answer to your question. Let this be the answer to your first question. And please give these asses no other and no further answer to their useless braying about the word solar than simply this. Luther will have it so, and says that he is a doctor above all the doctors of the whole papacy. It shall stay at that. Henceforth, I shall simply hold them in contempt, and have them held in contempt so long as they are the kind of people, I should say asses, that they are. There are shameless nincompoops. There we go. There are shameless nincompoops among them who have never learned their own art of sophistry like Dr. Schmidt and Dr. Snotty Nose. <laughs> I'm quoting still. And their likes. And who set themselves against me in this matter which transcends not only sophistry but all the, words, all the world's wisdom and understanding as well. Truly an ass need not sing much, for he is already well known anyway by his ears. To you and to our people, however, I shall show why I chose to use the word solar in Romans 3.28. Actually, it was not solar, he says, but solum or tantum that I use so sharply do the asses look at my text. In other words, they, they didn't even get my text right. Nevertheless, I have used solar fide elsewhere, 
and I want both, solum and sola. I have constantly tried in translating to produce a pure and clear German, and it has often happened that for two or three or four weeks we have searched and inquired for a single word and sometimes not found it even then. In translating Job, Master Philip, or Agalus, and I labored so that sometimes we scarcely handled three lines in four days. Now that it is translated and finished, everybody can read and criticize it. One now runs his eyes over three or four pages and does not stumble once without realizing what boulders and clods had once laid there, where he now goes along as over a smoothly plain board. We had to sweat and toil there because we got those boulders and clods out of the way so that one could go along nicely. The plowing goes well when the field is cleared, but rooting out the woods and stumps and getting the field ready, this is a job nobody wants. There is no such thing as earning the world's thanks. Even God himself can earn no thanks with the sun, indeed with heaven and earth, or with his own son's death. It simply is and remains world in the devil's name because it just will not be anything else. Here, he's speaking now of Romans 3.28, I knew very well that the word solemn is not in the Greek or Latin text. The papists did not have to teach me that. It is a fact that these four letters, S-O-L-A, are not there, and these blockheads stare at them like cows at a new gate. At the same time, they do not see that it conveys the sense of the text. It belongs there if the translation is to be clear and vigorous. I wanted to speak German, not Latin or Greek, since it was German I had undertaken to speak in the translation. But it is the nature of our German language that in speaking of two things, one of which is affirmed and the other denied, we use the word solemn, a line, along with the word nicht, not, or kind, no. For example, we say the farmer brings a line, grain, and kind, money. No, really, I have now nicked money, but a line grain. In other words, I have no money and a loan grain. I have a line eaten and nicked yet drunk. Did you a line write it and nick write it over? There are innumerable cases of this kind in daily use. Now, that's a lengthy quote. You'll find it in Luther's works, 35, 185 to 89. Now, bottom line, that answer, just focusing in on one sentence, here it is what he's saying. He's conveying the sense of the text. That's it. Bottom line, he used the word alone to communicate the meaning of the text to the reader in German. Look again at the text, Romans 3, verse 
28. And it says very clearly in our English translation, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The word alone is not in our English translation because it's not in the Greek text. But no, no harm is done should the word alone have been in there in our English translations. Why? Here's why. Faith alone and faith apart from works amount to the exact same thing. And so what Martin Luther is doing is conveying the sense and the meaning of the text when he includes the word alone. That's the sense of the verse's doctrine. Why? Because Romans 3.28 teaches justification by faith alone. Why? What do we mean by justification by faith alone? What we mean is we're justified by faith apart from works. Faith by itself, faith on its own, or as the text says, faith apart from works. These are synonymous, ladies and gentlemen. And I stand with Luther. He brought out the sense of the verse, even as he added the word alone. And without the word alone, in our English translation, we still have the doctrine Justification by faith alone. Since we're in the text, let's continue reading. Romans 3, verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. What's he saying? Well, Going back to chapter 3, verse 9, we're all under sin, and the remedy is a justification, which is, again, God declaring us just or right in his sight. And if we're Jews, we're justified by faith, and if we're Gentiles, we're justified through faith. Same message to both. We're both in deep weeds, we're both under sin, and we're both justified in the same exact way through faith. Verse 31, I just want to just include there again, ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. Verse 31, do we then overthrow this law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, this is what the law taught us. The law reveals our sin and it points us to the Savior and through faith in him, we are justified. And that's what he's now going to portray in chapter 4. He's going to make this declaration, not in these words, but in terms of the content. Nothing I'm saying is new here. I'm upholding the law. The law brings us to this conclusion. Grace alone saves. We're saved by grace. And to prove my point, as you walk through the Old Testament, Two huge figures are Abraham and David, right? No, no dispute about that, and that's exactly where he goes. Exhibit A, for what I'm saying, is Abraham. Exhibit B is David. Romans chapter 4, that's the message. This isn't new. This is the way anyone gets in the kingdom. Verse 1. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, if works was the basis of his justification before God, he has something to boast about. Hmm. Link that back to verse 27 of chapter 3. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And he's already explained it's not on the table. And exhibit A for all of this doctrine I'm bringing forth is Abraham. And if he was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. But that's not the case. Why? Because he's justified the same way we are. By faith. Verse 2 again. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. I love it. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was credited to him. It was imputed to him as righteousness. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. He believed God and God said, I count you righteous in my sight. Verse 4 and 5. Again, we're not depending on one single verse to bring out the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's all through the text. But verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4 here make it so, so clear. And what is the doctrine? Justification by faith alone. And again, the word alone isn't in the text, but that's the doctrine. Look at verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. And with the word gift, we go back to chapter 3 and verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift. But if human works are involved in someone being employed by an employer, if he works and is then paid wages, it's not counted as a gift. He's going to the realm of the business world and saying, we all know this, don't we? If you work for an employer and get paid, what he gives you is not a gift. It's not even a giving to you. In fact, you are owed that money. If you are told uh, your hourly rate is a certain dollar amount and you work for so many hours, the employer now owes you. You don't say, oh, thank you. You, you. you said I'd get $15 an hour, and here it is. I've worked three hours. You gave me $45. What a gift. No, the word gift is not involved in the conversation. It's not a part of the conversation. In fact, if you're paid every week or every second week, if you're not paid, you say, where's my money? Because you earned it. That's the illustration of verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's right. That's a principle. Literally, the original language uh, is read this way. To the one who works. Or to the working one. The wages are not counted as a gift but as is due. Contrast that with the next words we read, verse 5, and to the one who does not work. And again, if you had the Greek New Testament in front of you and could understand it, here's what you'd read. Verse 4, to the working one. Verse 5, 
to the not working one. There's an insertion of the same words and the word not. It's the exact opposite. It's the contrast. The contrast between someone who works and someone who does not work. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, works are not involved, but believes in him, that's God, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. That, ladies and gentlemen, is justification by faith alone. The word alone is not there. The doctrine is. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies people working for it, people, no, uh, people striving to be holy, no. Who does God justify? God justifies the one who believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. While we're sinners, while we are sinful before a holy God, by believing, we're justified, plus nothing. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Bingo, there it is, that's the gospel. So, exhibit A for all this, this is nothing new. Abraham got in the kingdom of God this way. Exhibit B, David. Verse 6, just as David also. In other words, he's continuing the same theme. It's not just Abraham this is true of, it's true of David as well. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. That's the way David got in. Righteousness apart from works. God imputes, counts righteousness to David apart from works. And there's a quotation now from the Old Testament in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What's going on here? Well, imagine a ledger and God making a strike, God making a point of every sin of David. David sins, you look in God's ledger, there's a mark against him. There's a counting of sin to David's account. Look at the life of David, and because of his sin, you would say, look, he sinned on this day. He sinned again on this day. There's several sins this day. Then we go to the next day of David's life, and there's a sin in the morning, there's a sin in the afternoon, there's a sin in the evening. There are multiple sins. One sin means one mark in the ledger, accounting of sin in God's sight. Oh, but ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. Blessed are those 
whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. On the basis of the gospel, you go to the ledger of David and it's a totally blank page. Why? Not because God winks at sin, but because of all that we've read in Romans 3, 21 through to the end. What Jesus did. Jesus, if you think about it, instead of God putting the account of sin in David's ledger, he put it on Christ in his place as the substitute. And it was counted towards Christ. And Christ bore the punishment for David and for everyone else who puts their faith in him. You look at your standing before God as a Christian. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You look at the ledger of the Christian, you expect to see all your sins there. Look, I sinned, sinned on March the 8th. There's the sin. I can see it. There it is on the ledger. I sinned on March 9th. Yep, there it is. I can see it on the ledger. And you go to the Christian ledger, the man in Christ, it's blank. There are no sins. Why? Those sins were imputed to Christ on the cross. But more than that, ladies and gentlemen, in God's ledger, you not only see the blank page where there should be marks counting our sin, you see something like this. The righteous life of Jesus Christ applied to this sinner. That is the gospel. Verse 9 of Romans 4. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? Well, let's find out when Abraham was justified. Was it when he'd become the first Jew after he obeyed and was circumcised? No. Even there we see the gospel. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a description of the gospel. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Nothing else necessary. That's justification by faith alone. All right, verse 10. How then was it counted to him? What was the timing of this? Was it before or after he obeyed God and was circumcised? That's the question. Look at verse 10. In other words, was human works involved at all? Or was it faith alone? Here's the question. Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Here's the answer. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Before he had done anything. Before he had worked any action before he'd heard God's law and obeyed it. He believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, without obeying the law. That's Romans 3.28 again, isn't it? Apart from works of the law, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. And to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, they not merely have some outward conformity to the law here, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What was that? He believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. What a savior. I stand with Luther. We're justified by faith alone, alone, apart from works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. We recognize from Romans 11, verse 6, for grace to be grace, it's pure grace. There's no mixture. If works are involved, it's not grace anymore. And we're justified by the wonderful, amazing grace of God. Thank you for this gospel. May we understand it, never lose sight of it, and always hold on to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.